those of you who might not know me, my name is Father Jerry. I've gotten pastor here at St. Mary's the last year and a half, so thanks for joining us. To be honest with you, I'm always surprised when anyone comes to anything. And so, <laughs> I, uh, I was here about 6.40 or 5.45 and, and like nobody was here. I'm like, maybe nobody's going to come. And so I'm happy to see you all here this evening. So uh, thanks for being here. Uh, let's begin with prayer, and then we'll kind of uh, introduce what we're going to be doing here the next couple of months. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, this evening we come before you, grateful for your many gifts to us. We thank you most especially for the gift of your Son, Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We ask for outpouring your Spirit upon us, no matter what our story is, what brought us here this evening. We simply ask for an openness of heart, an openness of mind, that we may come to a deeper knowledge of many things, but most importantly, that we may come to a deeper knowledge of your personal and infinite love for us. You forgive our sins, you bring us peace, you know our past, but you call us to life. And we ask that this time together may be a time in growing in all the wonderful blessings that belong to your disciples. And we ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. So welcome to our first session, our very inaugural session of Joyfully Catholic, Growing in Knowledge of Our Catholic Faith. Um, we've never done this before quite like this here at St. Mary's. And so what's unique about this time together, what's unique about this group, you could say, is that I think it's a very, very diverse group in terms of our own knowledge and where we're at right now in regards to the faith, especially the Catholic faith. I know we have some individuals here this evening who are ordained deacons and priests. We have some individuals who are with us at Mass every single morning. We have some with us who are not Catholic but who are interested in, in becoming Catholic, being uh, confirmed or baptized as a Catholic. And we have some who just want to learn more. And so I know that we have a very diverse group, and so it's going to be unique to kind of go forward to see how we do this. And so, like I said, I just want to thank you for being here this evening. The first thing I want to do is um, pass out our schedule as a way to kind of introduce um, how this came about. I do want to uh, focus on the first paragraph to explain a bit of the context. It's been said that the most effective way to spread the gospel is to be a person of authentic joy. The goal of our Joyfully Catholic sessions is to grow in knowledge of our Catholic faith so as to deepen our relationship with Christ and his church. So the proposal here is anytime we can grow in knowledge of our Catholic faith, the end goal of that then is to deepen our relationship with both the Lord but also relationship with his church. And so that's what we're going to be trying to do, growing in knowledge to deepen a relationship. In having an authentic understanding of our Catholic faith, we are then equipped to give witness to the joy that is found in Christ and how this relationship is then lived out in and through the church. And so that's a bit about uh, what we're up to, trying to um, grow in our knowledge, deepen our relationship, and hopefully be a witness in our world as to what it means to be a person of, uh, of joy. Um, the very bottom there, you see our schedule. Um, you'll see some chapters to read. Don't worry, it's not too uh, heavy reading. I'll explain that towards the end of our time here this evening. But the first session is this evening, as you see, October 9th. Uh, why be Catholic? Why are we Catholic? Those, 
that's going to be the main focus of our question this evening. Um, next week, we'll dive into the story of salvation history, and then who is Jesus, the Mass, Scripture, the Blessed Virgin Mary and the Saints, faith, grace, and prayer, moral principles and life issues, introduction of the sacraments, baptism and confirmation, reconciliation and anointing of the sick, marriage and holy orders. And then we'll wrap up before Easter. Um, and then uh, we'll have some time this evening, actually, after we kind of finish up our main session, which I want to be done by 7 tonight. In the last 15 minutes, I just ask that those who are interested in, in potentially becoming Catholic at Easter, you might not have your mind made up yet, but just some type of interest in, in either being baptized or confirmed as a Catholic, I would ask the last 15 minutes that you would stay back just to touch base with some of you on a few um, of those things. And so um, that's the schedule. And so please... Uh, Plan, plan accordingly. Um, if there's any changes, we'll let you know, but I don't anticipate any changes to the schedule. What I want to begin with, everyone, is three really quick questions. Three really quick questions. One, why be a Catholic? Two, what does it mean to be a Catholic? And three, how do you become one? So why be Catholic? with our group this evening, there's probably going to be two main ways of rephrasing that question. So for those of us who are Catholic, maybe raised Catholic, maybe um, converted uh, at some point in our life, maybe before we got married or after we got married, um, maybe we had some type of conversion in, in high school or whatever it might be. For those of us who are lifelong Catholics, the question is, why am I Catholic? And for those of us who might be interested in becoming Catholic, the question is, well, why be one? Now, I know that most of the time, that question is answered from kind of a familial vantage point, right? So for most of us, for a lot of people, we're Catholic because we were raised Catholic, right? Because my grandparents were Catholic, because my mom was Catholic, my dad was Catholic, maybe because I went to a Catholic school, uh, maybe because my spouse is Catholic and I wanted to have the same faith under the same roof as we began our family, right? And so that's most commonly the way that question is answered of why am I Catholic, right? What I just described is sometimes referred to as cultural Catholicism. I've used that term before. When I say cultural Catholicism, I mean that the faith is being passed down in the culture in which I live. My school, my family, my parents, my siblings, and the faith is passed down in a cultural way. For most of the church's history of 2,000 years, that was our method of passing on the faith. Right? We pass on the faith through family, through culture. Now, there's one really important challenge to point out about doing things that way. It's this. It doesn't work anymore like that. Right? What I mean by that is this. To pass down the faith just in terms of culture hasn't worked because our culture has changed so drastically. Some of you might have been alive in the 50s and 60s and say, wow, 2019 is much different than when I was growing up or when I was born or when I was in school. Um, but if we want to pass on the faith or live the faith through cultural means, it doesn't work as a retention strategy. And here's how we know that. Numbers in our church 
are plummeting, right? I'm a millennial. What are they Millennials are blamed for everything, right? <laughs> All you Gen Xers and boomers blame us for everything. No, just kidding. No, and I, I, it looks like we have some other millennials here. Of, of millennial Catholics today, those that are actually Catholic, 10% of millennial Catholics are faithful to weekly Mass. One of the most basic things we can do as a Catholic is go to Mass on Sunday. 10%. Uh, the generation above was like 25%. So just in one generation here in America, we went down from 25% of Catholics going to Mass on Sunday to 10%. Oftentimes we do try to pass the faith on in our family, and of course parents are the first educators of the faith. I'm not trying to question any of that. In some ways, actually, here in Bismarck, we're unique. We have kind of a Catholic culture, even though I'm saying that it's not passed down, the faith doesn't pass down that way. We actually do have kind of a Catholic culture here in Bismarck, right? We have very good parishes. We have a university out there that is a great Catholic university. We have a Catholic hospital, a stone's throw away, or maybe a baseball throw away, right? And so there is some cultural Catholicism around us, but what we need to transition into is forming individuals who are not simply culturally Catholic, but who are intentionally living discipleship with Jesus. So the transformation is to move from this cultural thing to an ownership reality and being intentional about our faith, being intentional in our discipleship. And so back to this question, why be a Catholic? Everyone, there's really only one reason to be a Catholic. There's only one. I can't think of another one. The only reason that anyone should be a Catholic is because it's true. If it's not true, then you shouldn't want to be one. And that's true for anything, right? The only reason I should want to be a Catholic is because it's true. So, what I'd offer this evening, and this might be a bit startling, is don't be a Catholic because you're marrying a Catholic. Don't be a Catholic because your spouse wants you to. Don't be a Catholic because your friends want you to. The only reason to be a Catholic is because I've come to the conviction that this is true. That's the only reason. If it's not true, then don't do it. Now, that brings us to a, a really crucial point. In our culture today, we often see faith, we see faith as an opinion, right? So what I mean by that is this. We have matters of faith, we have matters of science, we have matters of mathematics, we have all these different realms, right? And when we talk about mathematics, things you can prove through a formula. When we talk about science, things you can prove maybe through some type of scientific equation, those are matters of truth. But when we talk about things like faith and religion, that's just opinion. Oftentimes, those are kind of the two main categories that we can describe opinions about truth. 
The challenge is this. What about things like love? What's the mathematical formula for love? What's the scientific equation for love? Can you prove love in a scientific, mathematical way? But we still believe that love is true. We still believe that love is a reality. So, what's important for us to be able to do is to understand this. Our belief in something doesn't make something true. Let me say that again. Our belief in something doesn't make it true. If I'm looking at this piece of paper and I'm convinced that this piece of paper is a circle, no matter how hard I believe this is a circle, my belief in this doesn't make it true. So what I'm trying to say is this. Our belief in Catholicism as the one true faith isn't what makes it true. What we want to do is believe that which is true. Does that make sense? That we want to kind of transition from seeing religion as a matter of just belief and opinion to know I want to assent to that which is true. And so that's, that's just kind of a, a way to get started and to, uh, to approach this. So what it's trying to say about this cultural thing of seeing mathematics, science, religion, opinion, truth, math, so on and so forth is this. Sometimes people of faith are seen as uneducated, unintelligent, illogical, and irrational. That faith is kind of like make-believe world, right? And then on the other hand, you have the educated world. You have those who are intelligent, those who are very logical and rational, and say, I want to be a logical person. I want to be rational. I want to be intelligent. And so here I am, but, but people of faith, ah, they're, they're the opposite of that. And so we want to once again transition and say, no, 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 no. I can be a person of both faith and also reason. I can be a person of both faith and science, right? That so oftentimes our culture wants to juxtapose those two things. No, 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 I'm into science. I don't do this faith stuff. No, they're actually friends. They're not foes. And we'll dive into that question more and more. Um, if you don't believe me, I have a clip here I want to show you. Um, the fellow you're going to see is named uh, Francis Collins. He was the direct, he's an American scientist. Um, he was the director of a project that was called the Human Genome Project. What the Human Genome Project did is it, for the very first time, mapped out the entire DNA of the human person. It's the first time this was ever done in the history of the world. And this guy was the lead doctor on it, Francis Collins. Um, he's going to tell us a bit about how he came to faith. And we're going to, once again, try to see how faith and science um, can be friends and not foes. In the truth of Christianity. What 
in the home where I grew up, uh, faith was not something that was talked about very much. Uh, my father was a professor of drama, my mother a playwright. Uh, when I went to college and those discussions in the dorm late at night about religion uh, began to occur, I had no particular reason to attach value uh, to a faith system. It had never been something I was familiar with or had internalized at all. And I assumed that any religious feelings that anyone held must be on the basis of some emotional experience, and I didn't trust those, or on the basis of some childhood indoctrination, uh, which I felt I was fortunate to have missed. I loved the experience of learning about the human body and all of the components of that, and I particularly loved being introduced to genetics. But then I ended up in, in the medical school curriculum sitting at the bedside of patients with diseases. This was no longer an abstract study of molecules and organ systems. These were real people. And one afternoon, one of my patients, a wonderful elderly woman, much like a grandmother, uh, who had very bad heart disease. Uh, she had a particularly bad episode of chest pain uh, while I was with her. She got through it, and at the end of that, explained to me how her faith was the thing that helped her in that situation. She realized that the doctors around her weren't really giving her that much help, but her faith was. And after she finished her own very personal description uh, of that faith, she turned to me, and I had been silent. And she looked at me quizzically, and she said, what do you believe, doctor? And ultimately, I had to admit to myself that her question had made me realize that I had arrived at an answer to the most important issue that we humans ever deal with. Is there a God? And I had arrived there without ever really looking at the evidence. And I was supposed to be a scientist. If there's one thing scientists claim they do is to arrive at conclusions based upon evidence. And I hadn't taken the trouble to do that. I was greatly assisted uh, by a pastor who lived down the road who I went and asked about all this and who gave me a copy of C.S. Lewis's wonderful book, Mere Christianity, because here was an Oxford scholar, a prodigiously developed intellect, who had traveled the same path. Within those pages, I realized for the first time that one can come to belief on a rational basis, and that in fact, given the many pointers that one sees around oneself in terms of the universe and it having a beginning, and it's fine-tuning in terms of the way in which all those constants that determine the behavior of matter and energy seem to have been set just in a certain very precise range to make life possible. Uh, and many other things, including my beloved mathematics and why they actually work anyway to describe the universe, something that makes you think the creator must have been a mathematician. That brought me then to the person of Jesus Christ as a person who was historically extremely well documented, that was news to me. I thought Christ was as much myth as history, and I realized after reading more about it, this was a historical figure upon which we have a great deal of evidence for his existence and his teachings, and even his rising from the dead in a literal way. That day at uh, my patient's bedside started a journey journey that I was reluctant uh, to begin, but I felt I needed to. A journey that I thought would result in strengthening my atheism, but to my surprise, resulted in my conversion. What I love about uh, Francis Collins' story was his assumptions about the faith 
when he was in college, he said, I, I thought that any person of faith, you know, experienced faith, either because of some type of childhood indoctrination, where they were raised in a family, where they were taught, you must believe this, believe this, believe this, or some type of just emotive experience, emotional experience. And the faith is much more than obviously both those things. And he said as a person of science, he came to recognize the irony that he had come to a conclusion about the most important question a human being will ever ask. Like he said, is there a God? And he had arrived at the conclusion, no, there's not, without ever having looked at the evidence. What we're going to be doing here is trying to look at that evidence um, and spend some time looking at that in a more thorough way. So, if in fact, everyone, we come to this conviction that both Catholicism and Christianity is true, here's the thing. It means something. It means this. It means that this truth comes into contact with me as a person, and that contact makes demands on my life. Which is to say that if Christianity is true, and that truth comes into contact with me, it then makes demands on my life that requires me essentially to change. That coming into contact with the Lord is not some type of neutral encounter. Coming into contact with Christ the Lord is not some kind of indifferent thing. When we come into contact with Jesus, he makes certain demands in my life that require me to change. I've said this before uh, a couple months ago in the homily. It goes like this. What do lords do? If we say that Jesus is Lord. Anyone know? When we talk about lords, you know, we don't have a lot of lords <laughs> that we know. Uh, but what, is, what does a lord do? Tells his servants to do stuff. Tells his servants to do stuff. Yeah, that sounds like ruling, right? What lords do is they rule, right? Lords rule. And so what a Christian says is that Jesus is Lord, which then means if Jesus is Lord and he's my Lord, that then means he rules my life. And he asks me to change things I might need to change. The catch is, because of something that happened a long time ago, we're actually hardwired to rebel against God. And if you don't think that's true, God bless you. <laughs> my goodness, I wish I were you. But in my very nature, I'm hardwired to rebel. It's called the fall. And we'll talk about original sin and all those things over the course of this time. But we're actually not hardwired to be obedient, nice little children. Right? We're hardwired through the fall, our fallen human nature, to question. We're hardwired to rebel and to, and that's just how things go. 
And so we have to, we have to keep that in mind. One of the reasons, everyone, that anyone who uh, becomes a Catholic or, um, you know, enters the church or uh, be, is confirmed as a Catholic, one of the reasons it takes a period of time, we don't just say, okay, you know, who wants to be a Catholic and have an altar call and you, and you come up and we just, you know, throw some oil on you, right, uh, to confirm you. Why, why, why don't we do that? Why don't, you know, that'd be a lot easier. It'd be easier for me. I wouldn't have to prep for, you know, 12 different sessions. You wouldn't have to come here on a Wednesday night. Um, you know, that'd be a lot easier. Here's why we don't do it that way. Here's why we're here, right? For those of you who are uh, becoming Catholic or interested, um, the reason we're here is, is this. The church, in a tremendous way, respects your intellect. We respect your mind. We respect your ability to reason and to think through and to analyze. And so we want to make sure that every person who is a Catholic um, intellectually is able to assent to it as true, right? Um, so we want to give everyone time to think about it. So like I said, during the next couple months, we're going to cover a lot. Um, you, we went through the schedule there. You see a lot of different topics. One note on this, for each of these topics listed, for each of these topics listed, I probably had one semester course in seminary on each topic. We're talking four to five hours a week for a semester with assignments and papers and tests and reading, okay? And I'm going to try to condense one semester into about 60 minutes. Uh, so at times it's going to seem, the analogy that I've heard before is like drinking from a fire hose, right? It, it's a lot of information. Um, and so we'll do our best. I'm going to do my best to condense things down in an accessible way um, so you can learn and grow in your knowledge of, of our Catholic faith. Now, as I've been talking so far this evening, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, I will, I'll believe some of the things, I'll believe some of the things that Catholicism proposes as um, as a truth or that the Catholic Church teaches or believes, right? Um, I'll believe some of the things. But I'm not really sure if I believe everything, right? So I'll believe this, I'll believe this, I'll believe this. But everything? Really? I mean, there's a lot there. And typically, this, this questioning, right, um, comes up. You'll see it on the schedule on February 12th. Typically, this comes up when we start talking about moral issues, right? That's the main place where we'll say, okay, I'll believe that Jesus is present in the Eucharist. I'll believe that your sins are forgiven in confession. I'll believe in baptism, um, whatever. I'll believe that Jesus established the church. But when it comes to moral issues, when it comes to those hot topic issues, that's where I'm going to depart. That's where I'm going to say, ah, maybe not so, Right? And so when we start talking about things like, you know, life issues, whatever it might be, whether it's abortion or contraception or, or homosexuality, and by the way, almost all those topics are vastly misunderstood as to what the church actually teaches, right? And so because you just heard that word and you're saying, I don't want to come back, please don't follow that thought process, right? Let's actually examine this and get to the bottom of it. 
you know, the church doesn't usually say we believe certain things about X, Y, or Z just based on opinion, right? Every moral issue isn't about just belief. Every moral issue that we propose as Catholics has everything to do with clear thinking, with clear, intellectual, rational, logical thinking. So what we're going to try to do when we look at some of these topics, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on those things I just mentioned, but when we do, one of the things we're going to try to do is be clear about it and be logical and to be rational and to have right and careful thinking. So that was the question number one. Why be a Catholic? Because I've come to the conviction that this is true. Okay? So the second question was, what does it mean to be a Catholic? To be a Catholic, everyone, the simplest, easiest way to propose it is this. It means to be a disciple. It means to be a disciple. Does anyone know, you can raise your hand or shout it out, does anyone know what a disciple is? What's that? Okay, spreads the word. Okay. A follower. Okay, somebody who follows someone else. Okay. A student. Great. In Jesus' time, one of the the easiest word for a disciple would be would be an apprentice. All right. I'm, I know that there's a TV show, and I don't want to get political here tonight. Okay. Okay. The apprentice. An apprentice. Sorry. No. That's really what a disciple is. Is is an apprentice. Right. The goal of every disciple, the goal of every apprentice, right, is to become like the master. So you follow somebody to learn how they live, to learn what they do, to learn their trade, to become like that teacher. So the goal of every Catholic then, as a disciple, is to be transformed into, into who? Into Jesus, right? So... The goal here is not just for me to communicate information to you. The goal would actually be transformation, right? The goal of the life of grace, the reason uh, the church exists, is to transform us to be like Jesus. For us as the followers, as the apprentices, as the disciples, to become like the master. And if you're like me, I sit back and go, holy cow, things don't really look like that. My life doesn't look like the life of Jesus. But that's the goal of the Christian faith, that kind of transformation. That kind of transformation. And we've heard before that this word, uh, oftentimes when you hear the word convert, right, we think of a Lutheran becoming a Catholic. I converted from Lutheranism to Catholicism. Right? My dad, for example, was a convert to the Catholic faith um, after you know, 21 years of marriage to my mom. He was a convert. The word conversion or the, the noun convert, everyone, can't simply be reduced to somebody changing their religious affiliation or denomination. Conversion is actually something that changes more than just where I go to church. Conversion changes the heart. Conversion changes the way you think. The word conversion literally means change of mind, change of the way we think. 
Um, and what does that conversion look like? How do I know that a conversion has taken place in my heart, in my life, through contact with Jesus, through the life of grace, and him working in me? What Jesus does for us, everyone, is he changes the way we see reality. Right? So, a disciple of Jesus sees suffering differently than a non-disciple of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus sees cancer differently than a non-disciple. A disciple of Jesus sees death differently. So when I say it changes the way we think, this is what I'm talking about. It changes the way we see everything because Jesus changes everything. And the promises that he makes to us and what he reveals to us and what he invites us to changes, changes all those things. You know, oftentimes we talk about just have faith. Oh, you just need to have more faith. No. I don't know if it's always just about having more faith in some kind of blind way. But what faith does, everyone, faith is not blind. The church isn't asking people to be blind members of the Catholic Church Incorporated. Faith is not blind. Faith is a lens that changes the way we see things. Faith is a lens that changes the way we see the world, the way we see our lives, the way we see reality, right? So, if I could put it as simple as I could, one of the goals of our time together is really simple to come to know God in a deeper way. To come to know Jesus in a deeper way. Right? Um, And we're not just talking about head knowledge. We're talking about heart knowledge. When you talk about knowledge, oftentimes we reduce it to just the head. Intellectual knowledge. In the Bible, especially the Old Testament, anytime the word knowledge was used to know someone, The first place it's used is the book of Genesis when it says Adam knew Eve. Knowledge in the Old Testament is always an experiential knowledge. It's always experiential knowledge from the heart, not just from the head. So hopefully in our Catholic faith, we can come to know Jesus not just on an intellectual level, but on the level of the heart, on the level of an experience of him right so but in order to know him we sometimes have to surrender our wills to him and why do we have to surrender our wills to him because we're rebellious by our nature and uh, we want to give Jesus who is Lord uh, more permission so a couple things what can you expect of myself Father Wolf's going to cover a couple classes uh, but most of the time you'll have uh, me with you on Wednesday evenings but what can you expect of, of us And I know I can speak for Father Wolf. Um, And if I don't, he'll beat me up. Um, We're not going to be here to teach you our opinions. This is not going to be a time of Father Jonathan and Father Wolf sharing our opinions with you. 
Um, we're here for a very, very simple reason. We will teach you what the Catholic Church teaches, right? That's what you can expect. We will teach you what the Catholic Church teaches. You know, once in a while I'll hear people say, I'm a conservative Catholic, right? I'm a traditional Catholic. I'm a progressive Catholic. I'm not a very good Catholic. <laughs> okay? Uh, and then we put these labels on it. And I want to say to him, like, where'd you get that? Where's that in the catechism? Where's that in anywhere in the history of the church in terms of, like, th these labels that we apply to Catholicism? And, and I want to say, I'm none of those things, right? Sometimes we try to, like, peg priests on, you know, if he holds his hands like this, he's conservative, like, oh, God, we got a good one, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, we got a real progressive pastor. We got a real conservative pastor, right? I'm a Roman Catholic. That's what I am, right? And so what we're going to do here is try to propose what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. That's not just why I get paid. It's what I believe, right? And so um, that's what you can expect from us on, uh, on Wednesday evenings here at Joyfully Catholic. So a couple housekeeping items. Um, First off, we got a book for all of you. Um, so, uh, I know that some people, you know, aren't readers, and, and that's fine. But uh, what I wanted to do uh, with our sessions here this, this year, this first time, was offer kind of a supplemental reading um, to our time together on Wednesday nights. So this isn't going to like coincide perfectly with what I'm presenting on. And when we read the intro here, you'll find out why I can't have it like perfectly coincide. So let's say, for example, we're going to talk about the Eucharist. It'd be great to be able to read, you know, some chapters about the Eucharist. But that's not the point of this book. This is not, this is meant to be a supplement or a support of, of other things we're going to be doing. Peter Kraft is a uh, philosopher out at uh, Boston College, I believe. He's written a lot of books. Some of you might have uh, run across some of them before. He writes in a, in a really compelling way. He, he's a very smart man, but he's able to write in a way that's very accessible, uh, which I find helpful. And he also writes in really short chapters, right? Which I love, <laughs> right? But this is, uh, can easily be read each chapter in, in one sitting. Let me read the intro. And then uh, you'll see why I asked us to uh, use it. So if you could turn to the intro, it's page 3. 40 reasons I am a Catholic. All right. Since I have ADD and get bored very easily, I believe books should be short. Since introductions are almost always boring, I also believe introductions should be short. My title explains itself, but it is misleading. There are more than 40 reasons. In fact, there are at least 10 to the 82nd power, which I am told is the number of atoms in the universe. And that's just an ordinary matter, which makes up only 4.9% of the universe, the rest being dark matter, 26.8%, and dark energy, 68.3%. Each of my reasons is an independent reason, so I have not organized this book by a succession of chapters or headings. Most readers remember only a few big ideas or separate points after reading a book anyway. I've never heard anyone say, oh, that was a good, continuous process of logically ordered argumentation. 
or oh, that was a good multiple-headed and subheaded outline. But I've often heard people say, oh, that was a good point. Why are you a Catholic is a good question. The Catholic faith is not the default position anymore, anywhere in the world, as it was in Christendom during the Middle Ages, and perhaps it was never supposed to be. A good question deserves a good answer. Here are 40 of mine. All right? So he goes through and tries to offer his 40 best reasons um, to be a Catholic. And chapter 1 there, page 5, I believe that Catholicism is true. That might sound familiar to what we started with here this evening. All right. So what I kind of envision is hopefully um, for each week, for example, for next uh, Wednesday when we meet on October 16th, uh, I just assigned you four chapters or uh, picked four chapters, the first four, and we'll just kind of go through. Um, I encourage you when you go through, if there's anything you have questions on, when we come together on Wednesdays and you want to ask, uh, it'd be nice to be able to try to answer some of your questions or, or dialogue about them or visit about them, whatever it might be. So uh, just take this home, and it's, like I said, meant to be a supplement to other things that we will be uh, covering. So, uh, like I said, next week we'll talk about the story of salvation history. If you don't know what that means, well, next week you'll find out, and we'll explain uh, the story of salvation history. We're going to actually spend some time looking at uh, the first couple chapters of Genesis, because... I'm under the conviction, and I know a few others are too, that if we can get the book of Genesis right and understand what's going on there, we can understand a lot. And if we misunderstand the book of Genesis in the first couple chapters, we can misunderstand a lot, right? So, for example, so if I'm going to be a Christian, do I really got to believe the world was created in six days? Day one, this happened. Day two, this and some of us are like, I don't know. If I'm a Christian, do I really have to be, believe that creation happened like that? And I want to say, you know, there's two creation stories, right? And they kind of contradict each other. Did you know that? So we, do we read it as a book of science or we do, re, do we read it as something else? Was the intention of the book of Genesis to be a scientific account of the creation of the world? Or was it meant to offer the reader and the listener a different perspective? So those types of questions, as you can see, and all of a sudden you're visiting second grade classrooms and you realize really quickly that they got to get this right. Otherwise, a lot's going to be lost. Um, we're going to dive into that next week with uh, the basic story of salvation history.